Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, if we haven't had the, the chance to meet, uh, I'm Robbie Itterberg, and just want to welcome you again. Glad you're with us, and you're joining us in the middle of a series that's carrying us through this summer, a series that we're calling More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And, and I'm wondering this morning if you have anyone in your life who tends to tell the same story or stories over and over and over. Stop looking around. I see you. That's not nice. (laughs) But we have people in our lives, don't we, that tell these same stories so much so that if you spend enough time with them, you don't know just the punchline. You know the timing of how to deliver it to get the greatest impact, right? (laughs) And so sometimes when you're in those situations and you're hearing the same story again, I don't know about you, but I find myself... I can just tune out for a while and just kind of go, okay, I'll just check back in when something new or interesting comes up because I've heard this one before. Well, this is what this series is all about. Because in this series, we are visiting or revisiting some of the most common, most familiar, and most epic stories in the Bible. These kinds of stories that if you have a church background, they may be some of your favorites. They're likely incredibly familiar to you. If you don't have a church background, it's likely that you even are familiar with some of these stories because they are so huge that they have come into our collective cultural consciousness. But when stories or anything is very familiar to us, it's easy to check out, isn't it? It's easy to kind of assume, you know what, I know this one. I know what it's really all about. And so as we approach this series, we're trying to approach these stories with a freshness, looking perhaps for details and meaning that we weren't aware of, maybe in the way we've received these stories before, finding in all of these stories that they all actually point to Jesus, and each of them has an incredible relevance for our lives here and now today, not just as these beautiful epic stories to put on a shelf and pull out from time to time. And so to set the the scene for today's story, I want to take you back actually to last week where Amanda, our director of Youth and Family Ministries, shared with us the incredible story of Joseph where we saw in the story Joseph's incredible arrogance and pride alienated himself from all of his family and especially his brothers. And so his brothers in turn end up selling him off into slavery where he's taken down to Egypt. And what we see in this is that God is working through all of the sin even of these people. And he's working out his great purposes in their lives. One of his purposes was to bring beautiful forgiveness to this family that was fractured by sin. Another purpose was so that God could provide provision and protection for his people as there was a great famine in, across the earth and, and God's people were brought actually to Egypt where Joseph was in this place of power and could provide for them, could protect them. 
But over the years, God's people multiplied and multiplied in Egypt. It happens. And the Egyptians started to become afraid. And so the king, the pharaoh at this time, hundreds of years later, ordered that the people of God should be enslaved, the Hebrews as they were called. They were forced to make bricks for construction, and he took it even a step further where he ordered all of the baby boys to be murdered, actually to be drowned in the Nile River, to be exact. And so things had gotten incredibly bad for the people of God in Egypt, and they cried out to the Lord for help, and he sent a helper. He raised up Moses, who he sent back to Pharaoh, and using Moses, and ultimately using nature itself, God conquers the so-called gods of Egypt, and even Pharaoh himself, to the point that finally Pharaoh gives up. He relents, and he says, just go, get out of here. And so God leads them out of Egypt, intending them to take them to what was called the promised land, this place that God had promised years and years before to be a place of security, a place of protection, a place of abundance, a home for them. But as God took them out, he didn't take them the direct route. Because if he had taken them the direct route, it was likely that they were going to come in conflict with a group of people called the Philistines, and he wanted them to avoid war. So he actually takes them the long way around. In fact, he even leads them with this pillar of cloud by day that became a pillar of fire by night that the people would follow him, and to the point where they were kind of wandering, it seemed, through the wilderness. Word gets back to Pharaoh that it seems like they're just confused, wandering around, and they're definitely not coming back. And he once again has a change of heart, a change of mind, and he says, you know what? I've made a terrible mistake. And so he rallies his entire army, hundreds of chariots and horses and his soldiers, and he begins to pursue them, to bring them back, and he pursues them as God leads them right to the edge of the Red Sea. And you got to picture the moment. God has led this people right to the edge of the sea that's impossible to pass. They don't have any boats. And as they look back, they see the Egyptian army pressing in on them, chariots and horses, a sea of soldiers on one side and the literal sea on the other side. And there is nowhere to go. And that brings us to where we're going to jump in today. In Exodus chapter 14. If you'd like, you can follow along on the screen, but listen as God's word speaks to us this morning. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 
During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and, saw, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment that's been carved out in the course of our week, of our life, Thank you for your word that speaks to us. We invite your Holy Spirit to take the words of my mouth, the thoughts in our minds, that you would make it your words for us, words that will shape us, move us, transform us, fill us with a hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So there they were, trapped. And understandably, in that moment, they cry out to the Lord, but this was no prayer for help like they had prayed when they were in slavery. Instead, what we see is they cry out to the Lord through Moses with kind of this maybe ironic sense of humor or sarcasm. Right? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? What have you done? Didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt, just leave us alone, it would be better for us to stay there? I mean, we can see in this moment as the panic sets in that they're trying to figure out what do they do with the angst inside of them. They're trying to get rid of it. They're trying, it's going to overwhelm them, so they need to put it in somebody else's lap, and who else is better lap than Moses? And so they grumble, and they whine in their, and they blame. And the reality is in their fear, in their appropriate anxiety in the moment, it causes them to have tunnel vision. And, and really, it happens to all of us in the midst uh, of intense fear, that we literally get t- tunnel vision physically. We actually lose our ability to see what is in our periphery, and we can just focus on the thing in front of us that is terrifying us. We're no longer able to take in much of our uh, surroundings and unable to see the possible pathways of escape that may be available to us in the moment. We get that tunnel vision physically, but we also get tunnel vision just mentally. And it often takes the form of binary thinking. It's this either-or mindset. And the reason we do this is because when there's only two options before us, it helps us feel like we can have control over it a little bit, even though it, it is totally out of our control. And so we slice it up into only a couple of options that make it easier to handle. And so everything becomes black or white, good or bad, right or wrong. There's only two options. And this is what they've done. There's only two options that they can see. 
The two options are we go back to Egypt as slaves or we die in the desert. See, they're no longer able to consider the possibility that there is another way. I think this happens in our lives frequently, where we're in a situation in our fear where we, and our worry, we only see the bad options that are available to us. It's either crisis or disaster. It's either frying pan or fire. It's either rock or hard place. It's either hurt or pain. We can't consider that there might be another way. And maybe there is another way. Now, admittedly, I believe this story is here partially to make sure that we realize that There is no other way, and there was no other way for them based on their own strength and their own abilities. They are overmatched by the army of Egypt, and they certainly are overmatched by the sea. And so they rightly in this moment feel a sense of helplessness. There isn't another way, oh, apart from the plan that God had been working from the beginning. And he did have a plan for them just like God has a plan for you. When you feel trapped, when you feel stuck, when you feel helpless, like you can't seem to solve the problem, when you feel like there is no good solution, God still has a plan for you in that place. See, remember, it was God who led them to that place in the first place. It was his presence in the pillar of cloud and fire that brought them there, that was guiding them to the shore of the Red Sea. It was God who had said to Moses just before the passage we read, Pharaoh is going to think that you're confused wandering around in the desert, and he's going to come after you. It was God's plan to entice Pharaoh to come out. It was God's plan to bring him in, them into that place ultimately so that God could show himself that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord and that they would give him the glory. So, in other words, God has led them to the place where they were trapped. That was his plan for them, to put them in an impossible situation where their fears would overwhelm them, where they feel desperate and helpless, where they have nothing to contribute to the situation but their weakness and their whining. And this is sometimes how God works in our lives. But there is a very common idea that is even preached widely, particularly on television, because there is a real appeal to it. But there is this idea that many carry that if you follow God, if you are obedient, then your life will become more secure, it will become more prosperous and easier for you. That if you trust him enough, that he is going to ultimately give you what you want. He is ultimately going to make you happy. That there will be no grief or hardship, that it will become easier for you. And yet in this story, that's not what God has done at all. At least not initially. And they had no idea how it was going to turn out. Instead, what they've experienced is that they have followed God into the wilderness. He's brought them to a place of crisis and fear. Now, was it because they were disobedient? Was it because they didn't trust the Lord? No, at least not that we're told. In fact, what we're told is that they followed him. No, it's because God had a different plan for them. 
that he would do something in this moment that only he could do and that he would get the the glory and the credit and that they would know that he is the Lord. When you face situations where you feel trapped and overwhelmed and helpless, that may be exactly where God wants you to be. Because it may be in that situation that you get to see God in a way you would never see him when things seem to be going just fine for you. Where you may get to see his creativity, his power, his love, his grace. Because sometimes in the crisis, you get to know him more fully. And see, Moses answers the people's whining and grumbling this way. Do not be afraid. (laughs) Right. This is so often repeated in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Actually, I heard one pastor say one time that this phrase, do not be afraid, is repeated 365 times in the Bible. Now, I haven't verified that, but it fit nicely because, you know, he wanted to tell us that it was one for every day of the year, right? And it was cute and it worked, but whether it's 365 exactly or not is irrelevant. What's clear is it's there a whole lot of times. Because we face situations that often bring us worry and fear, things that are out of our control, where we feel overwhelmed. And so Moses is speaking into that for them. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. All these Egyptians that you see, you're going to never see them again. See, he's inviting them into an approach to the situation where it's not fear that is driving them closing off their eyes to the possibilities of what could happen next instead, inviting them to be open to seeing something that they never thought possible, that they'll see the deliverance of God. Say, yeah, you see the Egyptians, that's all you can seem to focus on. You see the waters of the sea, don't worry about it, you'll never see it again. We see these situations in our lives where we see the problem, the failure, the fear, and God's saying, no, 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 do not be afraid. You're gonna see the deliverance of the Lord because, as Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. How good are you at being still? Some are like, I'm great. I take a nap every single day. Good for you. Some have not stopped moving even since you sat down. And maybe sometimes we're good at stilling our body, but what about our mind? What about our heart? And the funny thing is actually this translation that we have says be still, but it's not probably the best translation of the Hebrew word that it's trying to represent. Because when it says be still, it takes this whole context and it seems like Moses is offering this very comforting word to the people. Like, oh, it's okay. I know you're afraid. I know that it's hard for you, but God's going to take care of it. Just be still. But actually, the, the word, more literally, is probably better translated, be silent. Or maybe even more strongly, shut up. Stop. Stop whining. Stop grumbling. Stop talking. Stop the internal monologue that reinforces how impossible the situation is. Stop telling yourself the lies that even God can't get you out of this situation. Stop. Shut up. But how? 
can they do that? How can we do that? How can we silence not just the words coming out of our mouths, but the words that perhaps are constantly spinning in our mind when we're in a situation that's bringing all that fear? I think part of it is to, as Moses is encouraging them, to take their eyes off of themselves. See, fear is by its very nature self-centered because we fear what's going to happen to us. Even when we think about fearing for other people, you know, we have a, often have compassion for people that we don't know. We can be concerned for them, but fear really seems to rise up in us when it's people that we really care about because it's going to impact them and impact us deeply. And so, Moses is saying, hey, take your eyes off of yourselves because when we have our eyes of fear It causes us to only look at the danger, only look at our vulnerability. The tunnel vision gets narrower and narrower, and it also then keeps us only looking to ourselves resources, rather than able to see that there are resources in other people, in other situations, and there's resources from God himself that may be available to us in the moment. And he's saying, lift your eyes off of yourselves, and then you will see, see the deliverance of the Lord. Are you looking for it? Are your eyes actively looking for the deliverance of the Lord? For how God will show up? For how he is going to take the impossible and open up a way for you? Because that's what happens in this story, right? And that's the part that we know pretty well of this story. Moses stretches out his arms and what happens? the waters of the sea part and there's dry land that appears and can you just imagine this wall of water on the left and the right and like can you see the fish swimming through I don't know I just think it would have been amazing but this way comes open and nobody saw this coming because this is impossible oh but so was the situation they were in see it was impossible that God would open up the waters but In reality, this was an act just like creation, bringing life out of chaos and death. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, this kind of happened before. There was water over the whole face of the earth and God, he separates the waters and brings dry land forward so that on the dry land, then plants could grow and animals could, could live and humans could thrive and flourish. And so, it made sense in this ancient Hebrew mindset that this, this bringing dry land out of water was an act of creation because they actually understood the, the, the sea as an enemy of life. The sea represented chaos and destruction. And so in order for life to thrive, God had to overcome the chaos of the sea. And so as God parts the Red Sea, In this story, in this moment, it's a reenactment of creation itself. He separates the waters, dry land appears so that life can thrive and flourish. And they walk through. Which is another good reason to believe that it's not probably telling us be still, it's telling us to be silent. Because to be still kind of implies that they probably shouldn't move. But in that process, to just sit there and be still is to take away their agency, to take away their responsibility to actually move when the way opens. And so instead, it's be silent. It's about quieting their mouths and their minds long enough to see that God was going to open up a way, and when the way opened, to actually walk through it as an act of faith and trust. 
And so they walk. Oh, and the Egyptians have probably got to be thinking, oh, this is so good. There's nowhere for them to go. They're hemmed in by the water. The the road's gotten narrower. We're just going to run them down from behind, and so they pursue them. But God continues to work against them, jamming up their wheels somehow, throwing them into this confusion and chaos, and we're told that it's all night long. All night long, the winds are holding back the waters. All night long, the Egyptians are trying to pursue the Israelites, and it's like only in the very last moments of the night do they kind of go, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we should get out of here because the Lord is fighting against us. And then Moses once again is told to stretch his hands out over the sea and the waters come crashing back in, engulfing the army, the sea going back to its place and we're told not one of the Egyptians survived. The Hebrews are delivered. The Israelites are delivered. The Egyptians are drowned. It's kind of a full circle on this story because if you remember at the beginning, it was the Egyptians that were drowning Israelite babies in the river. And in the end, God brings a just punishment. Life for life. See, sometimes we read the Bible and, and we see the God in the Old Testament as a God who is hateful. God who's wrathful and angry and brutal and somehow disconnect that from the God that is seen in the New Testament and yet what we see in this moment is that this is not just a great story for the Hebrews and we find ourselves going, what about the Egyptians? How could God do this? We see a God who is just and a God who is gracious at the same time. God made a way for the Hebrews through the impossible. All they had to do was shut up long enough, take their eyes off of themselves to see what God was going to do, to do something totally new. But all of this was to get to the end of the story. The very last verse, in verse 31 that we read, we're told that they saw the great power of the Lord and the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. See, the reason God brought them to a place of impossibility, of feeling trapped, of feeling afraid and inadequate and overwhelmed, having tunnel vision and feeling helpless, it was so that they would know him. It's they see his power in their lives, working for them to realize that they don't have to trust in themselves alone, that they don't have to rely on their own ability and problem solving to overcome the challenges that are before them in life, but that they can trust the God who loves them, who cares for them, who is able to make a way through the impossible so that they could be in a relationship with him. See, that was the plan from the beginning. It was for them to be in a relationship with him. And the reality is, this story is, is one of the ways that relationships thrive and flourish. You know the people who are truly there for you, particularly in those times of crisis, those situations that seem to extend where you are helpless, where you're in need, where you can't seem to hold yourself up. You know the people who are truly your friends. They keep showing up for you. They keep doing for you what you can't do for yourself. This is what God is doing in this story. He's saying, hey, I'm going to keep showing up for you. 
I'm with you every time, in every situation. Trust me. And see, the, God's plan for us today is the same as his plan was for those people way back then, to bring us into and through impossible situations where we feel trapped so that we can have a deepening relationship with him. And it's most clear in the most, in the most impossible situation of all. See, the most impossible situation of all for us as humans is that we live in and of ourselves in bondage, in slavery to sin to the patterns in our lives of destructive behavior, of destructive habits, of destructive attitudes and decision-making patterns of rebellion and rejection of God and his plan and his purpose and his will for our lives, patterns that lead not to life but to death, patterns that leave a sea of sin separating us from God, pursued on the backside by an army of regret, of shame, of guilt, of frustration and fear, hemmed in with nowhere to go. And often we just, we try to solve this problem on our own. We try to figure out, okay, I'm going to pay for my past. I'm going to change my ways. But does it work? Do we really get free? Do we really conquer the army of guilt and shame that we carry with us? Or do we just get a little distance from it? And yet, continuing to be pursued. And I think often, it's easy to feel like, okay, I just can't do this. Realizing we can't actually overcome our past and our guilt, and so we just go, you know what, I'm just gonna try to be happy in the moment. I'm just gonna try to do what, what feels good now, try to distract me from the, this army that's pursuing me, and so what do we do? We plunge right into the sea. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna do whatever makes me happy in this moment, or at least whatever can alleviate some of this guilt and shame. But is there another way? <laughs> there is another way. It's another act of recreation in our hearts and in our souls where the sea of chaos and rebellion that is within us is split open and a way is made through. In John 14, Jesus says it this way, I am the way. You can come to the Father. You can have a relationship with God through me. I will enter the sea of your sin. I will stand and justly die in your place for your rebellion. And that is what the cross was all about. He died taking our sin upon himself so that we in, that, in his place could have life. We could be fully alive, delivered from the impossibility of our sin and our guilt and able to have a relationship with God without fear and shame. And if Jesus would come and give his life in our place so that we can be free from that sin, guilt, and shame, will God not be for you in whatever situation you find yourself in? Will God not also be for you in the impossibility where you feel trapped when you're facing something that is too big, too overwhelming, will he not also do what is good and fulfills his purposes in your life? Will he not also show you that in no situation in life, in death, in heaven, and on earth can separate you from the, his love that is for you in Christ Jesus? I, I don't know how God is going to act in your impossible situation. I don't know how God is going to make a way for you. I don't know exactly that's going to look like. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know that it's going to make things easier. I don't know that it's going to feel good. 
but I can say with confidence, the God who made a way through the desert, the God who made a way through the sea, the God who conquered the armies, the God who has overcome sin and shame and regret and frustration, he is for you and can make a way through whatever you're facing today. And so perhaps the invitation this morning is to shut up. All those thoughts that tell you otherwise, that tell you what a disappointment you are, that tell you why this isn't going to work out, to simply be silent and hear clearly, I love you. And if you're not sure, then just look to Jesus and what he has done for you. Be silent and see the deliverance of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible truth that in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from your love for us. And Lord, I know that some are here that are facing situations that feel impossible, helpless, and overwhelming. So Lord, may they be able to lift their eyes from themselves. May they be able to see how you're opening up a way. May they be able to know that you are for them, that you love them, that you want them to know you more deeply right here in the circumstance and right through it. Lord God, may you show up in profound ways and do what we can't do for ourselves, that we can give you the glory and the credit and the honor. Lord, we thank you for loving us in the impossibility and bondage of our sin and shame and regret. Thank you that we are loved in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>